mentioned here a few weeks ago our, our 2018 by 2018 plan, and we're going to talk about that. We want to talk about that with you at a, at a congregational meeting. Uh, we're not going to vote or anything, but we want to talk with you about that uh, and take time after church uh, in two weeks to do that. So make plans now. Uh, to begin to attend that meeting. Um, it won't take forever, but we want to talk to you about that and why we're excited about it and how we're going to get there as a church together. Uh, so uh, two weeks, there'll be a potluck after, after church, uh, so bring a dish to, to pass and to share, and we will start talking about that, how we're going to achieve that goal of sharing the gospel with 2018 people by December 31st, 2018. Five years from now, uh, we want to have effectively shared the gospel with people uh, in our community, uh, 2018 of them by the, in five years. So uh, that's going to be an exciting thing to see happen because we believe that God is going to do that in our church uh, and that he is going to lead us in, uh, in that kind of effective uh, evangelistic outreach. So uh, we're going to talk about that, like I say, two weeks from now. So um, two Sundays from today, uh, we'll have a potluck and we'll, um, we'll gather together and talk about uh, all of that. Also, uh, Jenny Boyer is uh, getting ready to bring little Hubert into the world. And uh, not really, that's not his name. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but there is a baby shower that was planned for yesterday, and due to the snow, that was postponed until tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Here at, here at the church? Oh, at the DuPont's house. Okay. So, 6 p.m. tomorrow night. And then, uh, one last quick announcement regarding our upcoming Wild Game Feast. Uh, first thing, there are still some tickets available, and if you don't have one yet and are planning to be there, be sure to see me and get a ticket between now and Friday. Uh, if you've got friends or neighbors that you think are coming uh, or might enjoy coming, these next couple days are your last opportunity to get them invited and get them a ticket. So uh, see me. If you're making a pie or a dessert for that event, some of our ladies have stepped up to the plate on that, um, please have that delivered no later than 9 a.m. Saturday morning. Uh, so that we can have that prepared. If you're bringing a wild game dish that day, bring it hot and ready to go by 9 o'clock that morning. We'll have a way to keep it hot uh, once it's here, but we need to. We probably can't warm it up. So bring it hot um, on Saturday morning by 9. Uh, set up crew, if you're on that, be here by uh, 6 p.m. Friday night. We're going to set up this room. And then finally, if you have uh, the, any of the following items that you would like to loan to us uh, to help us decorate in here, if you have taxidermy or wildlife artwork or antlers or sheds or hides or vintage hunting equipment, no guns, uh, that we could borrow and hang up in here uh, to create a lodge-like environment in this room, that would be a lot of fun. And so uh, it'll be returned to you after the event, uh, but we would like to decorate in here on Friday night. Yes, Judy? Uh, inoperable shotguns we'll take a look at. All right? Um, okay. 
Um, but uh, in any case, uh, that is going on, and that is going to be a, a lot of fun. It's going to be an exciting event. It'll be fun for the whole family. Uh, we've got a couple seminars. We're going to do archery in here. We're actually going to shoot in here. Uh, so if you've got a bow and you want to do that, bring your bow, and, uh, and there'll be opportunity to do that. We'll do it safely. We won't put holes in the wall or in each other. Um, and we've also got a guy from the DNR coming uh, to do a, uh, a, a seminar on outdoor safety and uh, field, uh, field care of game and so forth, and that'll be a lot of fun. Um, we may have one other one on uh, uh, Dutch oven cooking depending on if the work schedule works out. Uh, but in any case, it'll be, a, it'll be a lot of fun. I'll share the gospel with the guys, and we'll give some stuff away. It'll be a great time. So uh, in any case, uh, make plans for that as well. Now, uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us here as we open his word together. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great grace to me and to these, your people. Father, we, we know that without your grace, we could not approach you, we could not call upon you as Jesus taught us, Abba, Father. And, but because of your grace, because of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead, Father, we can come to you, we can call you Father, knowing that you have adopted us into your family. And Father, one of the ways you demonstrate your grace to us is not just through our ability to pray and and know that we are yours, but also through the giving of your word to us to instruct us and to teach us and to motivate us uh, to draw near to you and to obey you. And Father, uh, we pray this morning that as your word is opened, that, that you would speak through the text and that your Holy Spirit would convict and lead and challenge and encourage and guide. And, Father, that we would apply it faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we stopped last week, the people of Israel had moved from being protected in Egypt because of Joseph's position to being exploited and enslaved by the new Pharaoh who conveniently forgot all about Joseph. And worse, the new Pharaoh so feared Joseph, and I mean so feared Israel and, and hated them that he starts resorting uh, first to slavery and then to genocide, uh, which first happens covertly through an immoral order to the Hebrew midwives and to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. And then when that strategy failed, by openly commanding his slaves to throw all of their boy babies into the Nile. And it is an evil law made by an evil man who is determined to rule like God over God's people. And though the text doesn't highlight this, it's quite possible that Pharaoh's decree may have a theological undertone to it. Because the Nile is not just a river in Egypt. It's, just, it's also something that is worshipped as a god in Egypt. And there are creatures in it who are likewise worshipped as gods. And Pharaoh is believed to be a god. And so... Pharaoh may be commanding, in a sense, sacrifice to a pagan deity along with murdering these Hebrew babies. And he may be, in a sense, solving his Hebrew problem and sacrificing to one of the major gods of Egypt all at once. 
And what Exodus does make clear to us is that there is a real God who really exists and who really rules over both Egypt and Israel. And so this morning we're going to see that God is at work to deliver in the midst of this very dark situation. And and if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me over to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Now, Exodus is the second book in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, uh, there, are, there are three of them I can see on that table there by the door. Uh, grab one of those and take it home with you, and then bring it back. Uh, you, can, uh, uh, you can have that as our gift to you, okay? Uh, but if you've got Exodus there, Exodus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, follow along please as I read. Now a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And as his sister stood at a distance to know what will be done to him. Now his, and his sister stood at a distance to know what will be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child. And nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, this is a fascinating twist in the story that we've seen so far. Because it's not just the Hebrew midwives who have refused to obey the alleged supreme ruler of Egypt. It's also this ordinary Levite woman and her husband. Uh, They have found a way to disobey Pharaoh as much as possible. Even though Pharaoh wants all the boy babies cast into the Nile, when their baby is born, they don't do it. Instead, they hide him for three months. And when they can't hide him anymore, they come up with a creative way of obeying in part what Pharaoh had said. Since Pharaoh says he has to go into the Nile, into the Nile he will go. But he's going to go in a very unique way, in a little boat. And you probably can't tell this from your translation. Uh, The ESV here reads that she made a basket for him. But it's a very unique Hebrew word. It occurs here. And in three other chapters of your Bible, Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and actually four chapters, 6, 7, 8, 9 of Genesis, 
which if you know your Bible, you know is the story of Noah and the what? The flood. Noah and the ark, right? And this is the same word. She built for him an ark. A little boat. Not a big boat like Noah's. It wasn't like this ginormous thing. Uh, but a small boat, a, a baby-sized boat. And in fact, she coats it and waterproofs it the same way as Noah. The same words are used for how Noah made his boat and then waterproofed it with, uh, with tar and pitch, or bitumen here it reads, and pitch. The idea is we're going to waterproof this thing. And, and you are meant, if you're a Hebrew reader, to go, wait a minute, an ark coated with pitch and tar. I remember that from somewhere. Where did I remember that from? Oh, yeah, Noah. How Noah deliv- was delivered in an ark of wood that was made waterproof, and God delivered that man and his family through the water, right? And in a sense, this is a clue, this is a reminder that in a sense, Moses is being delivered just like Noah and how God made a new beginning for his people with Noah, right? And he is creating, as he uses these words and as they do this same thing, God delivered through the water through a boat before. So I'm going to make a little boat for my boy. And I'm going to pray that God will deliver him just as he delivered Noah. That a new that there might be a new beginning for my people. And this is an act of faith. And it's foreshadowing, I think, also Moses' role as the deliverer who escapes through the water. And so his mother puts the ark in the in the river, but notice where. Now we have this vision you know, if you've seen Prince of Egypt or any of these other movies that are made, we have this vision of this little basket out there kind of floating and the waves crashing and the crocs are you know, swimming and the hippos and whatever. That's not what the text says. Look, what, look what, your, what your Bible says. It says that she put him in the reeds by the riverbank. In other words, yeah, the bottom's floating. We're right there among the cattails and papyrus that's growing up along the side of the river. He's in the river. I obeyed. But he's not out there where he can have anything really bad happen to him. In fact, she's got big sis out there watching over him like a hawk. Make sure that I have to obey Pharaoh, but I don't have to obey all the way. And I don't have to like it. And so she's got big sis out there to see what happens, which I also think is an act of faith. Because I don't think that a mother would send her child out there to see if her baby is drowned or devoured. I think there is a plan in place, and I think she is seeking God for a miracle here. And a miracle is just what happens. Although I don't think it's an accident where the baby is placed. Because Pharaoh's daughter, she just, as the story presents it, she just happens to be at this spot. thousand miles of river, two sides of it, and somehow Pharaoh's daughter just happens to find this basket. You think that was by accident or by design? I happen to think that this mother is thinking. She goes, well, I know where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. 
maybe I'll put the baby over there. And that's what she does. And she is still, by the way, even as she's working her plan, she is trusting God because this is the daughter of the Pharaoh. If anybody could be counted on to obey the Pharaoh's command, she could. But on the other hand, she's also a woman. And she may therefore have compassion on this child. And that's the hope. And so her, the mother, who's not mentioned by name here, we'll find out what her name is later, but God stirs the princess to compassion. God does deliver. She see, This lady, Pharaoh's daughter, who's also not named, sees the basket, and she sends a slave to investigate. She finds the baby. She realizes it's a Hebrew baby, probably because the child is circumcised, and claims him as her own. And at this point, Big Sis steps in, doing what she's supposed to do, why she's there, and says, hey, you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse that baby for you? I know somebody who might be able to do that. She's got somebody already lined up. Who? The child's mom, who's only too happy to comply. And on top of that, God makes sure he not only protects this baby and her and and the baby's mother, he makes sure the baby's mom gets paid to do what she wants to do anyway, which is nurse her baby and raise him up right under Pharaoh's nose. Who's the supreme ruler of Egypt? It ain't Pharaoh. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. Okay. Um, and she raises, she's allowed to raise him. By the way, in, in our world, this would seem a little weird. But in, in, in a lot of ancient cultures, in fact, even in a lot of modern cultures, when it says that she nursed him until he was weaned, he might have been several years old by that point. Uh, quite possibly as old as five, maybe even older than that. Uh, I think that's strange, but nevertheless, she has, she has time with her boy. And she has time to tell him some very important things, as in, you are not an Egyptian. God is protecting you by putting you in Pharaoh's palace and, and by allowing you to be adopted as the son of a Pharaoh's daughter, but you are not an Egyptian. And God has put you, for, put you there for a specific reason. And we don't know what that reason is, but God has provided for you and He has delivered you. And Moses, there's a point for that. But nevertheless, he grows up and she, is, he, she takes him to Pharaoh's daughter and he becomes her son. Now this was a very common thing in in this period in Egypt's history, they raised a lot of foreign uh, potentates' sons within the uh, within the walls of the palace. They were called the children of the nursery, and and she is uh, she's well within her rights to do this. Except she's doing it not with a uh, foreign sovereign's child, but with one of the slave women' children, which is unusual. And she gives him a name. Uh, she gives him the name Moses, which is based on the Hebrew word Masha, which means he who draws out. And a similar word is often used in Egyptian names, 
with that of a god. So it could be that Pharaoh's daughter thinks of Moses as a gift from one of her gods. But the reality of it is, is that we know he who draws out of the river in Moses' case, don't we? And God is going to take the gift that he has given to Pharaoh's daughter, ensure that he gets the best training and education in leading a nation that there is available in the world of that time. This is like, this is the ancient equivalent of the Kennedy School of Government that Moses is enrolled in. And he is able to to learn all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, according to the book of Acts. He's schooled in all of these things. He gets the best training, the best education, the best uh, uh, training in leadership, the best training in administering a nation. And that's going to come in handy at some point. And, and what I want you to see here is that God is at work. Not in spite of the nation's circumstances, but in them. In the midst of them. Even as people remain enslaved, even as uh, Moses' mother's situation is totally desperate, even as his own situation is desperate, God is still at work. And he is still working, even, even though their circumstances, except for Moses, have not changed one iota. God is still at work. And he is still bringing deliverance. And he has, in fact, already started to bring deliverance to his people. Now, they don't all know it yet. And Moses doesn't know it yet. And her mother doesn't know it yet. But God is at work, and he is working to deliver in their circumstances before he delivers from slavery while they're still in it. And that matters. Because many times I think, I think that we think of God's deliverance as only happening when we are taken out of circumstances we don't like. Well, I'll know that I've been delivered when life stops being up an uphill, uh, an uphill climb that's totally painful. No. God is still at work even in the midst of these circumstances. And deliverance out of them is coming, but God is still delivering even while they're going on. And this part of Moses' story is meant to remind us that God is working long before the Exodus comes. Because you know what? Eighty years elapsed between Moses' birth and the Exodus. Eighty years. Nearly a fourth of the time that the people are enslaved elapses between Moses' birth and crossing the Red Sea. But God is at work. He is working to bring deliverance to Israel in their circumstances because of His covenant with them. So, let's move on here in the story. Uh, One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. 
And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flocks. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, I think that since Moses was raised by his own mother, at least partly, uh, possibly to age five or even later, that he grew up both being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and knowing that by nature he was not her child, but he was Hebrew. And since he was so he has kind of a dual identity, he is adopted prince of Egypt, but he also remains a Hebrew. And his heart remains with Israel, which is why verse 11 says twice, his people. He goes out to look at his people and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. In his heart, he remains a Hebrew. And out of love for them, He's about 40 years old at this point. He goes out and he looks on their situation. And the text says he sees an Egyptian beating this Hebrew slave. And the Hebrew word there uh, is the same word that God uses later in Exodus to say that he will strike the firstborn of Egypt with the tenth plague. So it says he is beating or striking this Hebrew. What it means is, is that he is beating him to death. He is beating him to death. And Moses therefore looks to see if the coast is clear and he acts with vengeance against this Egyptian. And commentators argue about this. Some say Moses clearly here is a murderer. I'm not sure I agree with those guys. Because I think that you have the right to defend with force, even deadly force, those who are harming members of your family, those who are threatening members of your family. And so I think he is acting in another's defense, and therefore this is, in our terms, a righteous kill. On the other hand, it still gets him into trouble because what it does do... See, as Prince of Egypt, you could put to, you could put to death whoever you wanted including your fellow Egyptians, for any reason and none. You had absolute rule. You ruled by divine right. But at the same time, for him, as a Hebrew, to put to death an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew slave, well now, what that does is that reveals Moses' heart Pharaoh. And so he's in trouble, not for murder, but for treason. 
because the fear of the Egyptians was that they would rise up against them and overthrow them. Here Moses gives every indication that that's what he would like to see happen. But it doesn't come out right away. The next day, you know, Moses buries the guy in a shallow grave, sticks him in the sand, and the next day he tries to intervene between two Hebrews, and the abuser of the two of them mocks him and says, Who made you king? Who died and left you in charge, Moses? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And shortly after that, word gets around and Moses has to flee for his life. And Moses flees to Midian. And in Moses' exodus to Egypt, uh, uh, exodus from Egypt and 40-year sojourn in the desert near Midian, he again foreshadows and prefigures the nation's exodus. And by the way, 40-year sojourn in the desert near Midian. The, what the author is doing is it's, he's drawing, he draws with Moses' Moses' life a connection back to God's earlier deliverance. And then also, because this is written after the Exodus happened, he's foreshadowing what's going to happen with the nation by saying, look, see, the guy who led you out of Egypt had to escape through the water just like you did. The guy who had to flee to Midian like you did, already did it once. The guy who spent 40 years in the desert, just like you did, is your leader. And there's a little bit of foreshadowing that's here, anticipating Moses' later role uh, as the deliverer, as the one who leads them about as an alien in a land not their own in the desert near Midian. And he's not yet prepared to lead the nation out of Egypt, but God does use him to deliver some other people, the daughters of the priest of Midian, one of whom becomes his wife, Zipporah. And she bears him a son named Gershom, which is a compound of two Hebrew words, Gur and Sham, which means an alien there. Because he is no longer able to Really, he's a man without a country. He's a man without a people. His own people have rejected him as prince and judge, and he's no longer prince of Egypt. Instead, he's a shepherd in the desert. And he's guide and leader to a flock of the weakest and most fearful animals to ever draw breath on this planet. And once again, God is unexpectedly delivering in Moses' circumstances in a way that Moses could not have imagined and would not have chosen if it were up to him, God is preparing him to lead. He's given him all the formal education that he could possibly want by being raised in Pharaoh's palace. And now he's going to get real down-to-earth practical experience leading a creature that is fearful and weak and dumb. Just like the nation, he's going to lead later on for 40 years. He's going to get 40 years of practice doing what he's going to spend 40 years doing. And he's given Moses protection. He's given him a superior education. And now he has to complete the course in humility and brokenness. 
before he is equipped to fill his role as God's deliverer. Now look with me at the last three verses here. During these many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. About 40 years elapsed between Moses' exodus and the exodus of the nation, and during all that time, the Pharaoh of Moses' birth, which is probably Tutmosis III, has died, and his genocidal edicts against the nation probably die with him. And in that, God is working, because the death bringer has died. And Israel's slavery continues, and the people are crying out to God for deliverance. And here the text, I think, is really interesting. In just two verses, there are four verbs. I want you to underline them, okay? God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Okay? I want to explain that a little bit. And I think it's because I think it's a fascinating progression. When you are in pain, let me ask you. When you are in pain, don't raise your hand, but just... Just just let me ask you here. When you're in pain, you want to know, don't you, that God hears you. God hears. That when I'm that when I'm in my room or I'm in that hospital room and I'm crying out either as the person in the bed or as the person next to them crying out for them. I want to know that my prayers go up further than the ceiling. Amen? And here, what, what Exodus is telling us is the people cried out from the midst of their slavery. And what happened? God heard. God heard them. They weren't just, their prayers were not just bouncing off the pyramids. God hears them crying out. And the next thing that happens is that God remembers. Now, this this does not mean, by the way, that God is prone to a nutrisweet moment, okay, where he just grows forgetful, or, you know, those synapses didn't fire that day, or whatever. It's the idea that God remembers with the intention of doing something about it. It's like when you ladies that are married ask your husband, did you remember our anniversary is this Saturday? And what you're telling him is, flowers would be a good idea. Dinner, out, something would be indicate that you have taken action in light of the fact that you remember, right? Same thing is true here, that God remembers, that He recalls the fact that He has a covenant with these people and that a part of that covenant involves putting these people in a land of their own and giving them blessing amen that he's already fulfilled his covenant to make them a mighty nation because there are a bunch of them 
But they're not yet in the promised land, and they're not yet experiencing all the blessings that God has promised to give them. And so God remembers His covenant. And then in addition to that, it says that God saw. They aren't hidden. You know, one of the things the psalmist says, and I wish I remembered where, but the psalmist asked the Lord at one point, do you have eyes of flesh? Do your eyes see? And Exodus tells us, yes, God saw what was happening to his people. They were not hidden from Him. It wasn't that their condition He was unaware of. It wasn't that He was off managing the universe somewhere else. And oh yeah, I remember, I have some folks down there. I wonder how they're doing. God sees them. That everything that is happening to them is happening before His eyes. Before His face. He is aware of their situation. And it says, and God knew. And it doesn't just mean that he, you know, cognitively had some understanding. It's a relational word in Hebrew. He understands in a deep way what they are going through. And because of his steadfast love for a people that he hears and remembers and sees and knows, he is going to fulfill his covenant with them to take them out from under the thumb of the slave master and into a land of their own. Now, it's going to take a little while. You're going to have to wait to see it, just like they had to wait to see it. They had to wait a lot longer. We're going to get there, just like them. You've got to wait to see how it happens. But right here is the pivot point between being in slavery and God stepping in and saying, that's enough. This is coming to an end. Well, who can guess what the point of this passage is? It's that God, in ways we did not expect, is delivering in our circumstances because of His covenant with us. God's, you know, God's people, Israel, were under a covenant with Him He had made a covenant with Abraham and these people shared in it. But God had made a greater covenant with Jesus. Amen? He had established it through Jesus for us. Through His uh, death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. It's part of what we celebrate as we take communion. Is God's covenant with us. But just as God was delivering them even while they were remaining in their circumstances... God is delivering you and I even while we remain in our circumstances. Was Moses' mother's situation desperate? Yes. could hardly be worse. But God delivered in the most unexpected way you could imagine. Giving her not only back her son, but getting, pay, getting Pharaoh to pay her to be Moses' mother. Can you imagine? 
God then ensured that Moses, the one who God would use to break Pharaoh's rule over his people, got the best possible training for doing that in Moses' own house. I mean, Pharaoh's own house. Paid for at Pharaoh's expense out of his treasury. And when Moses is is zealous to deliver Israel, but not yet humble enough to wait for God's timing and method, God delivers him out of Egypt himself and into a situation where he can learn those lessons. And all the while, God is working in unexpected ways, not in spite of the people's circumstances, but in them. And God is doing the same thing with you and with me. I don't know what your circumstances are, but I do know this, that if you live long enough, that you will be in a set of circumstances you cannot wait to be out of. And that God will put you there in them, just as He allowed and placed the people of Israel in Egypt and then allowed them to go into slavery for reasons of His own. And God is going to put you and put me in the circumstances where, like I say, we can't wait to be out of. But nevertheless, God will deliver. And sometimes He delivers you out of those. But even before He does that, He is delivering you in them. And He is doing things in you and working in ways you did not expect and could not have planned for. Because He has a plan and a purpose for you, just as He had a plan and purpose for Moses, just as He had a plan and a purpose for His people Israel. God is working in ways you did not expect and would not choose to bring salvation and deliverance and blessing to you as well. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then let's take communion. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that while we were in circumstances we don't like, that you are still at work. That you are still at work, not in spite of our circumstances, but right in the middle of them. And you are the God who hears and remembers, sees and knows exactly what we go through. And in your perfect timing and plan, you will deliver in a way that we can see it. Father, we pray we would trust you in the midst of our circumstances, that we would, by faith, continue to look to you in them and to know that you hear us, love us, and will act on our behalf. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I could have those who are going to help us with communion come forward, please.